Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. It is Monday. I'm Charlie Sykes. Least surprising news of the day, the man leading President Trump's efforts to overturn the presidential election has tested positive for COVID-19. What a surprise. Uh, Meanwhile, the tentacles of the Kraken are being ripped off one court case at a time. This losing streak in federal and state courts is truly epic as one judge after another throws out uh, Donald Trump's attempts to disenfranchise millions of voters. Um, hope springs alive, though. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, this is this is the good news that he's losing in court. The bad news is that uh, most Republicans remain in the fetal crouch uh, story over the weekend, which I'm sure you've heard about by now. Washington Post found that only 27 congressional re- uh, Republicans are willing to acknowledge that Joe Biden won the election. So 88 percent of members of Congress, which would be the House and the Senate, refuse to say who won the election. Isn't that remarkable? Uh, so you, you do have, and I wrote one in my newsletter this morning, that in order to stand up apparently and do your job, even including the ministerial functions of certifying an election, requires a certain amount of courage these days. It takes some courage for Doug Ducey in Arizona to certify the elections or for uh, the governor, Brad, uh, Brian Kemp, in Georgia to push back and say, no, I'm not going to throw out the election. Now, it shouldn't require these courage. It should be just common sense. It shouldn't be controversial at all. It shouldn't require any particular you know, moral quality to say, hey, that's that, that you know, these charges are crazy. They're, they're lies. And, and I'm going to follow the law. And there's no, literally no constitutional basis for me to throw out this election. So here we are. And by the way, thank you for listening to the Bulwark podcast. I haven't mentioned this. Um, you know, how, what an extraordinary season we've been having. We are, um, over 27 million downloads since we began. We're going to cross 28 million this month. We are very, very grateful to all of us. And we're grateful for all of our guests, including our Monday guest, former Congressman Dave Jolly, who's going to explain why all this is happening to us. Hey, good morning, good morning, <laughs> well, I don't know about that, Charlie, but hey, congratulations to you and the team at the Bulwark. Just a fantastic product that you regularly put out. And it's tough work. It's hard work. I don't think a lot of people realize the work that goes into putting this out. But uh, look, there's an audience that that loves it and thrives on it. So thank you for what you're doing. Well, I appreciate it, Nick. Appreciate the the number of times you have come on the program. Let me start by doing this, though. I have a couple of audios that I want to play for you. One is Jake Tapper from CNN, who makes a point that I think is so important that you know we watch Donald Trump with his firehose of lies down in Georgia. You know, he's throwing out one falsehood after another. He is advancing one conspiracy theory after another. And I think there's a temptation to say, wow, he's obviously been sent around the bend by losing this election. And what Tapper reminds us is that this is who Donald Trump has always been, that he's not doing something now that he has not done for years. He told us who he was when he was advancing the birtherism, you know, lie uh, back in what was, you know, eight years ago. Um, and nothing's changed. So let me, let me just play this. It runs, it runs a little bit under two minutes. President Trump has been pushing lies and conspiracy theories for years that have made life more dangerous for all kinds of Americans. He's stoked hate against blacks and Latinos and Muslims and Jews and Asian Americans, against women, against judges, against Democrats, against Republicans who disagreed with him, against journalists, against entertainers. This did not just start on November 3rd. It turns out when a major political party coddles and enables and supports public figures who lie rapaciously and incessantly 
and also tolerate threats against those who challenge those lies, that storm of lies and indecency is strengthened and unleashed, and it cannot be controlled. And ultimately, the reason, cynicism or ignorance or illness, does not matter as much as that result. Look, in his racist campaign against immigrants, President Trump would often read the lyrics of a song that told the story of a tender-hearted woman who finds a half-frozen snake and nurses it back to health, only to fall victim to the snake's predatory nature. Oh, shut up, silly woman, said the reptile with a grin. You knew damn well I was a snake before you took me in. As Republican officials deal with these horrors of a president whose hideous lies are putting their election hopes in Georgia at risk, and more importantly, tragically, unacceptably, horrifyingly, even putting lives at risk, it has to be asked, did you not know who this man was when you took him in? David Jolly, that, that, that just nails it. And it's you know, you can, it, it is because, again, you go back to 2015 when many of us who became the never Trumpers looked at Donald Trump. We saw this was the guy and we're looking around saying, do you understand the consequences of putting somebody you know, in office who is uh, who is who is a chronic liar, who is a pathological liar and a con man who is prepared to come up with one conspiracy theory after another do you understand how 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 wrong you know this could you know, this how wrong this could be that's but right. also what about a bad path and here we are today what did we expect what did republicans expect was going to happen yeah charlie you're exactly right and jake tapper's exactly right but there's a nuance in this analysis that that should not escape us because it's an incredibly powerful nuance and it's this we have wrestled with how the Constitution could check a president who who behaves and acts like Donald Trump. But in retrospect, though, we saw the Constitution kind of strained and challenged a little bit. It held over the last four years and it, and it worked. Right. First of all, Donald Trump was a, was elected through an electoral college mechanism that has been blessed by the Constitution and the law that that actually worked, whether you agree with the electoral college or not. But when he got into office and he announced the uh, the ban on certain nations, six or seven predominantly Muslim nations, the court stepped in and said no. When he tried to steal money from the Department of Defense to build a wall, the courts initially stepped in and said no. When he tried to use the Ukraine to take down his political opponent, he was impeached by the House under the sole discretion of the House that the Constitution gives it. And he was acquitted by the Senate under its sole discretion. And the same people that elected him through the Electoral College in 2016 gave the House to Democrats in 18 to check him and ultimately pushed him out of office in 2020. The Constitution has worked. The danger in what Republicans have done by embracing and affirming Donald Trump and what is reflected in Jake Tapper's monologue there is that they have affirmed a behavior that is breaking down our fundamental confidence in the Constitution and in our democracy. Even in this interim where he's challenging the election, look, the Constitution's working, right? The courts are saying no. But it is what you mentioned, that the fact that only 27, I believe, Republicans are willing to affirm that Joe Biden was was duly elected. That is what's tearing at the fabric. What the Constitution can't protect us from is the awesome power of the bully pulpit and a political class that will encourage a large portion of the country come January 20th 
to not believe that our system worked, to not believe that our yeah. elections worked, and to question Biden's legitimacy. That's the danger. And and a serpent, a snake is probably the right analogy because that's what Republicans in Washington have emboldened, but that's how they're behaving themselves as well. You know, even though he's failed in federal court and, and these and these federal court decisions are really epic, they point out that there's no basis how flimsy they are, that uh, the, the facts are based on conjecture. There's not a single court that has found a single case of fraud out there. The Wisconsin State Supreme Court decision was uh, was really quite extraordinary um, in, uh, in in pushing back on Trump. So what they've done is it's feel, it feels like. They've simply moved on to raw power play, uh, just just pressuring legislators right. and pressuring governors uh, to just throw out the election and call special sessions of the legislature. This is the press secretary, Kaylee McEnany. By the way, I've, I've really worked in not learning how to pronounce her name correctly. So <laughs> I'm try that again. Kaylee McEnany, whatever her name is. This is what she said yesterday on Fox. Kemp, you have the power to call in a special le- legislative session because right now, if we lose these two Senate seats, guess who's casting the deciding vote in this country for our government? It will be Kamala Harris. Call for the special legislative session. Governor Kemp can also threaten the budget of the secretary of state. There is plenty he can do. Okay, there's certain incoherence there because she seems to be implying that obviously the Biden has won, otherwise Kamala Harris would not be the swing vote. Right. But the whole point of of calling the special session would be to uh, ignore the the will of the people uh, to uh, to nullify the election and to uh, il- il- cast the electoral votes for for Joe Biden, which is amazing that we're at that point now where you have conservatives asking governors bully other officials to throw out the election. You have people like Mark Levin now or Ted Cruz telling the U.S. Supreme Court to step into the Pennsylvania case to nullify the votes of 7 million people and have judicial activists basically overturn the election. I mean, this is an amazing period we're in right now. It really is, Charlie. And look, the principle that desperate people do desperate things is fully on display here. Donald Trump knows that he will be out of office on January 20th, but so does the team around him. And look, I say this uh, with some hesitation, but it's important that we we recognize what we know has happened over the last four years. Donald Trump has not been able to build a team of legitimate professional politicos or lawyers. I mean, look at who's arguing his cases right now. It's not your traditional law firms that otherwise are skilled and experienced in these cases is Rudy Giuliani and these misfits. Look at the political staff around him in the White House. It's not your seasoned seasoned professionals that are used to handling matters of national import. It is individuals who elevated themselves through the Fox newsroom and through social media and through conservative networks that don't reflect the best and the brightest. We know that. You know, the interesting thing, though, here is, and going back to what Tapper said, we knew that Donald Trump would always behave this way. Donald Trump looks through the lens of winners and losers, and the rules do not matter. We know that going back to his real estate days in New York. We know that based on everything he said, based on the insults that he projects on others, there are winners and losers. Donald Trump is going to have to reconcile, and he probably will not be able to, which is why we're seeing him flail with the fact that he is on the losing side and that history will always record it and his greatest loss and the greatest definition of Donald Trump as a loser happened on the world's largest stage with the entire world looking on. There's nothing that Kaylee or Donald Trump can say 
that will undo that for the president. You, you've seen this, these reports that he's thinking on of uh, not showing up at the at the Biden inauguration, instead taking Air Force One Good. and flying down to Mar-a-Lago and having some sort of a big rally, which would be a counter, a counter inauguration, which would be, I suppose, his final norm broken as president of the United States. Yeah, but look, this is a man who, in in many people's opinion, and and I've been very clear, my opinion on him is strong. This is a man who represents a stain on the presidency. He wants us to believe that the 2020 presidential election will look be looked at as an anomaly. It's not the case. The 2020 election is affirming that 2016 was the anomaly. The man pulled an inside straight, almost lucked into the White House, and everything he has done in office has brought ill repute on what has historically been a, a office that has been looked up to despite some of the actors in the past. So good. Don't attend the inauguration. Let the nation have what is otherwise a traditional, solemn, and celebratory moment for an incoming president. And if he wishes to go off and have his own rally, it is indicative of what's going to happen the next four years. He is going to suffocate the Republican Party and other leaders looking to emerge. Whether he decides to run in 2024 or not, by him trying to control the bully pulpit, he will ensure that Republicans lose their eighth popular vote for the presidency in four years out of the last nine, I believe, or will it be nine out of 10? Because where Trumpism as, as the populist movement has been powerful for the Republican party, right? They, they outperformed uh, when you look at congressional races, Trumpism, the political philosophy has not hurt Republicans. They haven't been able to expand their, they have not been able to expand their base, but they've held serve. But Donald Trump, the man will break the party in half. So go do it. Because for the Republicans that I look down on for empowering this man over the last four years, I don't want them to recover the party. They deserve time in the wilderness to reflect on what they allowed to happen under their watch. Okay, so let's let's talk about this future of the Republican Party. Uh, Jeffrey Cabaservice had a fantastic essay over the weekend uh, in the Washington Post where he talks about the how Trump's the, the movement has basically become. It's, it seems like it's patterned um, on Leon Trotsky's permanent revolution, American conservatism. Trump's permanent revolution has no fixed principles other than smashing a nebulous deep state, forcing all institutions of society to bend to its will and waging never ending war against Democrats, independents and non-Trump Republicans. It has become a perpetual grievance machine unwilling and unable to address those grievances through governance or the legislative process and refusing to accept Trump's defeat, the conservative movement increasingly insists that the rule of law, truth, and democracy are what the revolution says they are. More than 70 million Americans voted for Trump. He and his supporters will indulge in an orgy of fantasies about a stolen election for years to come. And this is the sentence. Any Republican who hopes to succeed him as president will have to parrot his claims that he won in a landslide, that American democracy is corrupt, and that Joe Biden is an illegitimate president. Now, that's bad for the Republican Party, David, but it's really bad for America, isn't it? It is bad for America. Yeah, and look, this goes back to what I said at the beginning. That that is the greatest damage that today's Republican leaders are inflicting on the American people. The Constitution held, but the bully pulpit has torn at the fabric of of who we are as a country and how we look at the law. And I think one of the key lines in what you just read is the philosophy that it is what they say it is. Right? That's kind of the 
the power of a carnival barker. That's the power of a Donald Trump, that it is what I say it is and prove to me that it's not. And unfortunately, you've seen Republicans affirm that. What, what I'm curious about the future of the party, Charlie, is we know that the party, all each party is is full of people with ambition. And on the Republican side, ambition to reach the White House. Is it Nikki Haley, Marco Rubio, Josh Hawley, uh, Mike Pompeo? Who is it? We are going to watch each of them try to navigate and figure out their fealty to Donald Trump while creating their mm-hmm. own constituency. And and it's not going to be by taking on the Trump constituency. It's going to be by bringing it over to them. You know, Josh Hawley and you, Charlie, you may have been the one to comment on this. Somebody commented on the last two weeks in the last two weeks, how how Josh Hawley, this traditional conservative Ivy League Supreme Court, you know, establishment Republican type has taken on this this veil of populism. And it, you can almost see this evolution where he's trying yeah, to pull the Trump so voters over. Yeah. Rubio's taking on this smash mouth politics like it's cool, like it's funny. Who is going to succeed at doing that? This is where if Donald Trump tries to stay in the game through 2024, they won't succeed. The traditional, you know, tip of the hat, oh, it's time to move on and and we need the next generation of leaders. They won't have room for that narrative. And this goes back to a man that they empowered, Donald Trump. The world could look very yeah. different today if Republicans on Capitol Hill had acknowledged, look, as Lindsey Graham did, that. Trump was elected. Trump beat the rest of them. But that doesn't mean you have to turn around and celebrate the man and empower him. That's what they've done. They deserve what they get. Yeah. they Did, did you happen to catch the Senate uh, debate last night in Georgia? Uh, just, just the just the just clips. The clips. That's, that's, that, that's the only thing I saw. By the way, um, Kelly Leffler's performance was so robotic and so uninspired that that we're, we're, we're in a moment right now where if you are a billionaire, if you're really a rich person, you're thinking, hey, I could be a senator because I don't have to like be very good at this or anything. That's but exactly it was interesting right. that, you know, she kept getting pounded by the question. So is Joe Biden, the president elect, uh, did, you know, was the election, uh, was the election illegitimate? And she kept dancing and dancing and dancing and dancing. And it did occur to me that, you know, Republicans, this is the rest of your life. this this it will be like this for the rest of your career because you're never going to be able to admit unless you declare independence let's just say screw it you know what facts are facts I'm, I'm, i'm gonna call the crazy the crazy i'm going to admit that you know two plus two is 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 four and it'll feel good trust me it actually does feel liberating to you know not not have to follow that line but if you don't do that you're going to be dancing and ted cruz and marco rubio and nikki haley are going to be dancing around and they're going to have to be you know playing with election trutherism yeah look charlie in, in any walk of life particularly in politics you have the opportunity to either lead or follow it's true in your civic organization your church the political arena the classroom your home you either lead or follow when it comes to these critical inflection points and I think the 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 misjudgment that a lot of politicians, Republican politicians are making right now is that they think the judgment of history only comes down on leaders. It doesn't. It comes down on followers as well. And so the decision of a of a Senator Leffler to follow or a Senator Purdue to follow, the judgment of history will last for as long as they're on this earth. And you know, I, I asked my wife recently, because we know David Perdue from some travel, particularly some Middle East travel that was in some fairly mm-hmm. intense and significant environments. And I, 
as as I'm contemplating my own political future, I said, you know, do you really think Purdue's enjoying this? <laughs> having having spent time with him when he first entered office as an outgoing CEO who thought he was going to go to the Senate and work on the budget and and restore some fiscal discipline and sanity and all those things you like to hear Republicans say. And I knew talking to him six years ago, oh, buddy, you're in for a world of, of surprise. And here he is six years later having to dance around like Leffler is this this man in the White House and and his voters just to hold on to a seat where he can't actually accomplish the things that he wants to accomplish because the system's so broken once you get there. I don't know. You know, at the end of the day, you take a Leffler and you're like, good, history's going to judge you. You're undergoing these machinations and these calculated judgments that are failing the smell test. You're doing it in the public eye. And you asked for this opportunity. And now we all get to remember how you responded in this moment. She doesn't deserve to be in the Senate in the first place, in my opinion. And and I'm certainly not a Georgia voter, but I'm not sure she deserves to return to the Senate if you do have a vote in Georgia. Well, you made a reference there to uh, your own political future. And I'm wondering why anybody wants a future in politics these days. But uh, (laughs) let's talk about that, because one of the Florida newspapers had a piece yesterday which they speculated that you may run for nothing, run for governor, run for Senate. So what do you what do you what are you thinking about? Yeah. Um, look, I've been I I think about it every day, Charlie, and um, and that the pretext to your question is probably most important. I mean, uh, you know, aside from making the first initial judgment on whether it's right for my wife and I, we have a young family, whether it's right for for raising kids in that environment. And I don't know that it is. I mean, at the end of the day, if I were to decide not to run, it may be based on that first uh, decision point, which is, is it right for our family? But beyond that, you have to ask, could you make a difference? And, you know, for several years, I actually had known that the 22 race would come around with Rubio. I was actually a Senate candidate in 2016 when he was running for president and at least notionally for about a year, led the polls on the Republican side mm-hmm. before, um, before Rubio got back into that race. So it has been an effort that I'm experienced with and that I believe I I could do right by the state of Florida in the Senate. But you look at the Senate and you think, could I really make a difference? And and that's a hard question to answer. In the interim, we've seen a Republican governor of Florida, in my judgment and many others, take exactly the wrong approach when it comes to the pandemic and to COVID. And there are some lingering issues as a result of a Republican supermajority in Florida where we have underfunded particularly education, early childhood education, and public education in the state of Florida. So, look, there are some areas where maybe the the governor's mansion is a place where somebody in my position could have a much greater impact and and more immediately impact what is the nation's third largest state. Those are all factors in our decision. We have some time. Um, I think the first inflection point will be next August, where I would have to decide whether to run as an independent or a no-party affiliate candidate in the state of Florida, and whether or not it's viable to do that outside of the two major parties. Well, that was the question I was going to ask you next. Where where does a Never Trump Republican fit in? Because Republicans think that uh, you know think that you're a traitor, right? Yeah, and, sure. And uh, d- Democrats still think, well, yeah, but he was, used to be a Republican. We can't trust him. Yeah, so yeah. This, this is the problem for many of us who have been political orphans, which is yeah. that, you know, in the abstract, people want reasonable 
principled, centrist politicians. But the reality of American politics is that is that you can't get a Republican nomination if you have betrayed Trumpism, and you can't get a Democratic nomination yeah. if you've been a former Republican. So, yeah, w- w- where does David Jolly, Jolly fit in? Where, where, I love place. I absolutely love that question for two reasons. One is is kind of political philosophy, which I think is such an important conversation. And the other is the raw politics of it. But the political philosophy is interesting because you're in this boat as well. I think most, most democratic and Republican activists, or at least high propensity and and high intensity or medium intensity uh, partisans today, they behave as partisans, right? And what, what the never Trump Republican community, though it it didn't always look like this. We may have behaved as partisans in the past, certainly taken partisan votes or promoted partisan policies. The very fact that we walked away from a party who was willing to move in a direction we disagreed with suggests that we're not really partisans at heart. And it's hard to think about it that way, right? A Charlie Sykes, a Bill mm-hmm. Crystal, a David Jolly, a Jeff Flake. We have been seen as Republicans But the truth is, when we faced the litmus test, we really didn't behave as partisans. Now, for your Democratic participants and voters, you worked for four years to elect your nominee to the White House and you got there. And this is your time to celebrate and your time to move Democratic principles. So so as a Democrat today, you're likely acting as a partisan because there's no reason not to. And so the coalition that existed over the last four years it's not strained over the distrust. Perhaps it is by some, but I think it's strained because the never Trump Republican community is largely saying, where do we go to act not as partisans, right? As you right. In, mentioned with the bulwark a couple of months back, as opposed to left, right, how do we go up and down the value mm-hmm. scale? Mm-hmm. Now, here's what I would say in terms of the raw politics of it in Florida. One, if I were to run as an independent, I don't know which side it spoils. Does it take five or 10 points from a Republican DeSantis and therefore Democrats have a better shot or does it draw from Democrats? I actually don't know. And I, mm-hmm. I could understand the case for either. But here's what I would say to my Democratic friends in Florida and to those nationally watching the race who say they're interested in perhaps making DeSantis a one term governor. Democrats in Florida have not won the governor's mansion in 26 years. And by the time 2022 comes, it will have been 28 years. So what am I spoiling if I run as an independent in Florida? Because it's not democratic viability. They're not viable right now. And what we saw from statewide Democrats this past election, Biden wins the White House, but Democrats in Florida go uh, lose the race statewide. Donald Trump wins. Democrats in Florida lose two congressional seats. And so I have a lot of friends who worked very hard and, and thought it was going to turn out differently. But what we learned in Florida is now for... 26, 28 years in terms of statewide races, Democrats simply aren't viable. And if you look at the last race in 18, you had a centrist in Bill Nelson. You had a progressive in Andrew Gillum. They both lost. And so my question for Democrats is, in Florida, are you really going to just produce your next nominee to step up to the firing line and lose and make it 32 or 34 years without winning the governor's mansion Or are you willing to consider an alliance with an independent, frankly, who's going to work more with Democrats than with Republicans and see policies begin to change in Florida? It's an interesting question. 
Um, yeah, it's a very I, interesting question. So what, what, what is the short answer to what happened to the Democrats in Florida? Why are they no longer viable? You know, I, it's a hard question to ask. I will tell you, some of it is raw mechanics and infrastructure. The Republicans have outperformed the infrastructure and the, and the consulting class game for about 20 years in Florida. And they also have, have used that power to create a majority in Tallahassee that controls drawing district lines, mm-hmm. legislative seats, and so forth. But why not the statewide races? Is a, is a good question because it's also not just the governor's mansion. In the last 20 years in, of our cabinet posts, there's three of them. I think Republicans have won 12 or 13 of the races and Democrats have won only two. Um, a one-term CFO in the early 2000s and now there's a commissioner of agriculture who's a who's a Democrat. What, what I saw, Charlie, I, I believe in this last race is the notion that these races in Florida are always 50-50 or 49-49 or 50-49 and Republicans eke out one point or one and a half points. The fact that Trump won by the margin he did to me says this is now a trend that's getting away from Democrats. What, what, what was the final margin? I'm sorry, I don't have it. It was about here. three points for okay. Trump. Yeah. And then Democrats lost two two seats in South Florida. Democrats mm-hmm. have are losing the constituency in, in South Florida. And so, look, there are... There are great Democratic candidates in Florida. Gwen Graham is a, a very good friend of mine. She'd be a fantastic governor. And if I didn't run and she did, I would certainly support her. Um, but if you look at people who are being talked about, Val Demings could be a Senate candidate. The Ag Commissioner could be a gubernatorial candidate. That's where I wonder if the Democrats go through a traditional nominating process without completely rebooting what the party's doing in the state of Florida, looking different in 2022. I think they nominate a Senate and gubernatorial candidate and they each lose by two to three points. Mm. And if you're, if you're interested in challenging Trumpism in Florida and you're a Democrat, I think you've got to look at 2022 a little differently than you thought you might otherwise. You know, what also makes this question so fascinating besides your personal issue that you have to deal with is the whole question of, is there a viable third way? Is there, because people keep asking this and my answer is usually our, our, uh, our system is too locked in. It's, it's too, it's too binary, but that's not always the case. There have been independents elected around the country, you know, uh, to the United States Senate. There are actual independents there. And if there was a race in Florida where there were three choices and there was a centrist alternative that might be an indication of where our politics can go to get out of this rut that it's in right now. So it's a very interesting yeah. question. Yeah. And Charlie, if I could, if I could provide some perspective sure. on that, it's not necessarily centrism either. It's, you know, I, I kind of reject the left right okay. spectrum analysis. Sometimes it's conservative. Sometimes it's progressive. Sometimes it's moderate. And, and it requires consideration of each of those perspectives to figure out policies that work. And in terms of viability, We know when people register to vote and they are presented with three equal options, R, D, or independent, a third of the people register as independent when they see three equal choices. Because of the challenges, systemic challenges to ballot access, party uh, access and affiliation for independent and new party candidates in most states, including Florida, the reason we see voters perform 50-50 is because on election day, they're not seeing three equally viable candidates because the two major parties have silenced 
the independent movement. Now, to break through requires doing a lot of things right and getting getting lucky in some areas, right? In politics, you need timing or money on your side or hopefully both. I think in Florida, if we were to do this, we would have to nationalize the race to let people begin to see politics a little differently and to let them see that on election day, there are actually three equal choices, an RD and an I. I don't know if we could pull it off. And fortunately, we've got some time to decide. And I don't know if I'm going to be the candidate. But if I'm not, I hope either in Florida or in some state, we begin to see some independent candidates challenge the current duopoly. Well, this is part of the problem is for somebody like, and I'll speak personally, you know, if as long as it's duopoly, I'm sort of, I'm feeling somewhat disenfranchised. I, I know some people are going, well, you should, you know, become a Democrat. Well, no, I don't, I don't want to move from one tribal identity to another tribal identity. And right. so, and the, and the duopoly does not necessarily cover where I am. So this is a very attractive idea. Okay. So this is a, this is a segue that's going to be a little bit easier than I was thinking. <laughs> that, but I wanted to move off of the, the, the current political moment, but but this, I don't think I am here by, um, by, by talking about one of the def- defining issues of our time and over the next two years will be this pandemic yeah. and with what's happening now. And I guess the first question I want to ask you is, why do you think this is happening to us now? Not specifically Florida, but around the country. What is happening that we are being overwhelmed now? With this third wave, three thousand Americans dying yeah. every day, a nine eleven every day, uh, California, you know, shutting shutting down, hospitals reaching capacity. What's happening, and what? Wh- why do you think it's happening? Lack of planning, lack of leadership, and a lack of responsibility by a large part of our citizenry. And so let's start with lack of planning. And I I bear responsibility for this as a member of Congress. You know, when when the focus came on Donald Trump about everything he did to fail to prepare for a pandemic, the reality is we have a Congress that's no longer a serious institution in planning Mm -hmm. for major uh, public health events like this. Congress was behind the ball as well with that having not provided the resources and preparation for what we knew could be a pandemic. So lack of planning, then lack of leadership. And and we've seen the diversity of leadership. Listeners of the Bulwark can probably have opinions on which governors they thought did right, which ones they thought did wrong, whether or not Donald Trump did right or did wrong. I'll share with you a contrast in in leadership because it leads to my third point, which is the responsibility of the citizenry. Having spent time in Pennsylvania and Florida during the pandemic, you know, I've shared with you, my wife and I mm-hmm. largely evacuated to a little mountain property in Pennsylvania. We're expecting our second baby. We're taking COVID very seriously. And in Florida, you have a governor who has basically said, freedom first, mm-hmm. right? We're not going to worry about the public health consequences of this. This is all about personal freedom. Uh, So no mask mandates. And are you ready for this? Probably the most indicting thing the governor of Florida did is for localities who said we're having an outbreak here. We're seeing an uptick in positivity and hospitalizations and deaths as a locality. We want to implement masks and greater restrictions. And we're going to we're going to issue a penalty of one hundred dollars or two hundred dollars if you don't comply. The governor of Florida stepped in and said, by executive authority, I am prohibiting 
municipalities from enforcing these mandates with any penalties. When school districts like Mm -hmm. in Miami said, we need to postpone for six weeks because it's too dangerous. The governor said, no, you're not allowed to. You're going back to school. Freedom first. Right. Okay. So, yeah, they blew up local control. Now, in Pennsylvania, where you have a Democratic governor who engaged in lockdowns, you saw a different um, result. Now, here's here's the third point on the impact of citizenry. And this has been fascinating for me to see, Charlie, because I'm not sure I would have seen it or believed it initially. The impact of leadership positions on the behavior and the contextual approach of a citizenry is real. When when my wife and I are in Florida, the citizenry does not take the pandemic as seriously as when we are in Pennsylvania. And it is because they are being told by their leaders, don't worry about it. Everything's fine. Get back to normal. In Pennsylvania, we're told this is a real threat. It's spreading. It could take your life. It could compromise your health. And we see people behave differently, regardless of R or D. They're responding to to the leadership within their state. And and so that, to me, is why we're in a third wave. It goes back to the national leadership of Donald Trump. We've seen it. We know it. But then it also goes to the decisions of Republican governors like Ron DeSantis, like Christy Noem and others. And, and, and you've also seen the, the, the tribalization. I imagine that uh, Pennsylvania is very much like Wisconsin, where it depends what part of the state you're in. In uh, if, if you're in if you're in Dane County or Milwaukee County, people are going to be taking the the mask uh, mask issue very, very seriously. If you go out into rural Wisconsin, people aren't going to be wearing their masks because right. the mask wearing bizarrely became part of the culture wars. It became part of the the tribalization. I got to tell you what I'm, I'm increasingly worried about the same thing happening with the vaccination. Uh, We already have an anti-vaxxer movement in this country that's got a lot of oxygen. And I wonder whether or not that's going to be politicized as well. I mean, I woke up this morning seeing that uh, one of the leading anti-vaxxers in the country has been, will be testifying in front of the Senate uh, Homeland Security Committee, which is headed by Wisconsin's Ron Johnson, who has apparently gone completely around the bend on some of this uh, conspiracy (laughs) theory stuff. But but, but if that's the way things are going to go, and you have uh, huge numbers of people in this country who refuse to take the vaccination, um, that, that, that could be catastrophic. And, yeah. and yet, in some ways, it's naive to think that anything is going to be immune from the culture war, from this, this partisan polarization. It's just that at the moment, people say, here's the light at the end of the tunnel. Here is the hope. We are going to be able to end this pandemic with the vaccination. And suddenly... The people who believe, and I know this is going to sound like a leap, but the people who believe that, you know, that they don't believe the results of an election aren't going to believe what the scientists are saying about the vaccination. I mean, they didn't believe what the scientists had to say about social distancing. So I I, I think this is a terrifying prospect, to be honest with you. Charlie, you know who I think could break through the conservative political orthodoxy on this? It is our evangelical leaders and faith-based conservative leaders who many of them keep a foot in conservative politics. And that, unfortunately, I think have has clouded their judgment on a lot of issues related to the president. But what I mean by that is this. The simple act of mask wearing is about doing something for others, right? It, we know that. It's not strictly about protecting yourself. It's about protecting others. The entire faith-based community 
is supported by these fundamental tenets, whatever, if it's Christianity, if it's Judaism, if it's Islam, it is about doing something for your brothers and sisters, about protecting those around you, helping those around you. The story of the Good Samaritan. Imagine if our leading faith leaders, and I mean I mean the the Falwells and the people like that who are recognized in the in the conservative political community were the ones saying, What would Jesus do? What he would do is he would protect his fellow man. He would do the public health uh, behaviors that are best for his family, for her family, for the society in which they live and for their neighbors. I'm not seeing this happening. And, and but I, that, I'm not seeing this coming from them. Do well, <laughs> and agree, we get to judge that. Then we get yeah. to judge that as well, uh, Charlie. Yeah, and, I, and at the end of the day, you know what I, I keep coming back to in terms of how we address a pandemic, and I hate this because um, it, it is not rooted in, in self or, or selfishness, but I always think of that, that airline instruction you know, put your mask on first so yep. that you can help others. Um, it's true in this pandemic. You you got to look out for you and yours and keep your family safe. And from there, begin to take care of others because we can't rely on others in this political environment if they think that masks are somehow making a political statement. It, it does continue to impress me, which is not the word I really want to use here. You would normally think that a massive pandemic that kills 300,000 Americans would be the ultimate reality check or that the results of an election would be yeah. a reality check. And it does feel that we are living in a post-reality world where no matter what the reality check is, there will be people who will defy it, people who will not believe it, um, and people who won't actually do the right thing. And that's that's well, really d depressing because I feel that a lot of the crises that we're experiencing right now are self-inflicted and, and, and they are really judgments on on the culture and, and and who we are as a people. Yeah. Well, and imagine the politics I, and and I hate this, but it's inevitable. I saw the CDC or a public health official recommended that um, if you've gotten the vaccination, they're going to encourage you to wear a button that, you know, you yeah. got vaccinated. Yeah. Can you imagine what the the conservative and libertarian and and deep state conspiracy community is going to think about that? And look, I don't even know if I'm comfortable with the notion of of why you would wear that unless it's just for the public health campaign to encourage others to do it. But if we're suggesting we're going to have kind of two parts of society, some that that have the button and some that don't, that gets us in a really weird space. Well, I, I, we're I, already pretty fractured, right? I, I, I get that completely. But also, uh, there are a lot of school systems in this country where you can't come to school unless your child has been vaccinated. That's right. Um, and, that's and there's exactly a reason right. for that. And I think that's a justifiable reason because this is this is this is public health. And so the question becomes, will there be employers who will require um, vaccination before you can return to the company? Uh, are there going to be events in which you're going to have to prove that you've been vaccinated? I, mean, I don't know what the answer is. Um, and, and by the way, I think we're going to have a very interesting debate about that. Well, this goes back to the policy debate in Washington over liability protections, right? So there's already at least one airline who, who has said once a vaccine's available, you will have to have had it to right. board the airline and good right. for them, right? Yeah. Now you have a lot of commercial actors and businesses who are thinking about their own liability. If they don't make that requirement, are they somehow then liable for having been negligent in protecting their customers? What Mitch McConnell and a lot of Republicans on the Hill is they want to give blanket liability exemption to businesses. And, you know, liability is not a 
all in or all out, there can be a sliding scale. It often is a sliding scale test. Did a business do uh, the appropriate things to try to take appropriate mm -hmm. uh, measures protecting their their customers? And if if somehow they are granted blanket liability protection, then we know they're not going to do that. This will be a policy issue that will have to get decided in the next round of stimulus bills. No, and I think I think this is going to be a very interesting debate. I have one more comment I want to make just before we we end this because. Uh, since we're, I'm, I'm on things that I'm worried about, which is the long <laughs> list here, you saw what happened in Michigan yesterday where dozens of armed protesters gathered outside the, the private home of the Michigan Secretary of State. Her name is Jocelyn Benson. And they were shouting obscenities and threatening violence in an effort to overturn the presidential election. She said this on Sundays. She said she's inside with her four-year-old daughter and these people are out there armed shouting obscenities at her. Um, you know, let me tell you why this is, I mean, obviously that's, that's dangerous, but, but it, it, in this particular context, it's really dangerous because I'm telling you, and I don't think people fully understand this, maybe even including our, some of our listeners, a lot of MAGA folks out there, a lot of the Trump folks out there do not realize this election is over. They still think right. that Trump is going to be inaugurated on January 20th. They think somehow that there's going to be something that will happen. The Kraken is going to get the Supreme Court to award him the presidency or something. And they are going to be genuinely shocked when they find out what the reality is. And that has not happened then. So the question is, how will they react then? And if you have people who are willing to go to a private home where a mother and her kid are inside and they're willing to show up with guns and shout obscenities, what are they going to do when this thing hits? I, 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 I don't think we fully understood how dangerous this moment is. I think you're exactly right, Charlie. And, and though I hate to personalize this, we have to contextualize it and say it would not be happening without Donald Trump's right. voice stoking it. Contrast Donald Trump's handling of the current election with Al Gore's. Who you could you could say Al Gore was boring and robotic, and he'd probably say he was as well. But the reality is, he said, "I disagree with the outcome, but I accept it. This is our process. This is how it works, and I wish uh, George Bush well." Imagine an environment where Donald Trump had taken that approach with Joe Biden. There wouldn't be protesters. There wouldn't be demands to recertify or uncertify or prevent certification. You would have disappointed MAGA voters who said, I can't believe our guy lost. I hope he runs in 2024. Yeah. Well, that sentiment does not involve firearms at the house of a local official. No, I completely agree. I, I think that if uh, that if the Republic, even if Trump had not done, I agree with you completely there. But even if Trump had not done, if everybody in the Republican Party and on the right had basically said the same thing on that Saturday, uh, when he was declared the victor, then there wouldn't have been as much space and oxygen for this misinformation to be out there because there are people out there who sincerely believe, you know, have been fed this steady diet for a month, raising questions in their mind. And for whatever reason, they this is going to come as a huge shock. And and I think people need to do kind of this would be a moment of of trying to understand that if you thought if you really do genuinely believe that your country is being stolen, that this thing is being, you know, taken away, that this is fraud, um, what would you be prepared to do? And so that's what's really frightening because these people have been have been ginned up uh, for 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 weeks and weeks and weeks. And the fact that we haven't seen any real violence or outbreak yet, I think, should not make us complacent about what's ahead. Hey, uh, David Jolly, thank you so much for. 
uh, coming on today and having this discussion. And I am, I really want to check back with you about uh, wh- what your, your thinking is, particularly involving Florida, but of course, all of these issues. So again, thanks for coming back on, David. You got it. Always great to be with you, Charlie. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do it all over again.